Hi and hello, watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, and my co-host, Alan Ben-Joseph, calling in all the way from the Netherlands. How are you doing today, Alan? Hey, buddy, I'm doing well. Again, excited for a new episode. I'm shaking all the viruses and the stuffy nose, although it's a bit stuffy, so my energy's back up. We're almost at Watches and Wonders, so I'm buzzing for joy. Yeah, you're sounding much better, thank God, and I'm glad that you're going to be back to full health in time for our marathon few days at Watches and Wonders. It's bad enough for me, but even worse for you because you have to do all of your retailer meetings on top of your media responsibilities that you now have thanks to your role on The Real Time Show. So how are you feeling about that? Are you excited for certain novelties? Are you excited to see any brands in particular? Tell me tell me what you're looking forward to. So yeah, I'm um, actually very excited. I'm, I, I think there's a good energy. People are excited. Brands are excited. You see that people are gearing up. Brands are gearing up here and there. We see a lot of releases. Brands that are not at the fair, Pal Expo, or exhibiting in town at a hotel or the time to watch is fair, which I'm actually very excited to go to. So that's interesting. See, you see them launching new models. So there is a buzz in the air. All the speculations obviously start with Rolex. Are they going to evolve the middle gal or not? Will it disappear? You hear more and more rumors that they're going to do something with the Daytona because it's the 60th anniversary. And even rumors that they're going to dump the ceramic bezel, which I can't believe, but you never know. What else? Tudor. Nobody has an idea. A lot of people are speculating about that. And then Patek was always number two. So what are they going to do? But there are no hints there. I hear a lot of people talking about the 222 by Vacheron Constant coming in stainless steel or two-tone. Then what do you think about that, Rob? What's your prediction? Oh, I would love to see that. I mean, I pitched a titanium quartz version of a 222 to Vacheron as a special edition as soon as they released the gold one last year, as you might remember. And um, I fully advocate for that watch to be made in full stainless steel or titanium or two-tone. That would be nice. Although I'm I'm less thrilled about that one in two-tone than I would be for something like a Rolex Datejust or even a Chapek Antartique for that matter. That one I definitely would want, Antartique, especially in titanium. Um, but, but... I have to say, back on the Vachon Constantin with the 2 to 2, it is kind of boring. I said, guys, come on. We're almost at the first third of the second decade of the 21st century. Okay. We're in the 20s. We finish one third. And we're the first third, the first third of the second decade of the 21st century. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Up to date. You, you saw I was, I was doing the math in my head. It wasn't that fast, but I'm like, I'm like, wow. This is the 21st century. We dreamt about the future, futuristic, and we're freaking still doing re-editions of watches we made in the past. I want to see new stuff. Vacheron, please shock us. Speak for yourself. I'm wearing a bioceramic masterpiece today. I've actually got my uh, recently acquired... Um, don't worry, it's not the special edition means watch, just in case anybody was about to throw their headphones out of the window. This is actually the Jupiter edition, which is the second moon swatch I've bought and the first one that I've actually built a relationship with and found myself wearing. So this is the future, Alon. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, okay. All right. Cool future. Bioceramic is cool. Whoever thought we would see plastic moon watches, but okay. It's bioceramic. It's bioceramic. Bioceramic plastic. <laughs> fancy plastic. Fancy plastic. <laughs> yeah. I'm very curious, though. One thing. What strap did you put it on? Aha. Oh, well, okay. I'm guessing that your professional media sensibilities are taking over here because you must know. You must know. You must have seen it. If not, it's an inspired question because the reason perhaps why I've actually formed a relationship with this one rather than giving it away like I did with my Neptune, the original piece that I had, is because I put it on a Terry-crafted rally strap. So it's one of those with those perforations, three rows of holes. The center line of holes is bigger and the outer line is smaller. If you follow my Instagram account, then go to uh, Rob Nuds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. If you don't, follow it and go to uh, Rob Nuds, R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, and you will be able to see a couple of pictures of this little beautiful, I don't know what we could describe it, um, khaki, khaki-cased, 
bioceramic mission to Jupiter. I must admit that I hated this model when it first came out, and now, out of almost nowhere, it has become my runaway favorite, and on this strap, with an Omega buckle, by the way, I had an old brushed Omega buckle, quite a modern one, in my box of bits and i fitted that to the strap and it looks absolutely awesome so that would be my recommendation for anyone that has bought either one of the original moon swatches or the recent moonshine gold special edition with its fancy 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 moonshine gold coated second hand stick it on a proper strap and uh enjoy also <laughs> advantage and the swatch group probably should have paid attention to this as well you don't have to worry about accidentally having the Mission to Neptune strap strapped onto your very obviously not Mission to Neptune moon swatch. I actually literally did not know that. I'm going to your Instagram account very soon when we're done with this recording. And I'm going to check that out. Why do I ask? Um, it seems the business around the moon swatch is getting bigger with the straps. It's a bit like the Apple industry. There are a lot of third-party players creating accessories for the apple merch and i guess the biggest hit for the moon swatch are those integrated um rubber straps because i have not met one person who loves the velcro the watches come on so you and i spoke on air a few weeks ago about where swatch should take the moon swatch franchise and we actually didn't talk about the straps i think they really really should step up their game and make straps and maybe even bioceramic ones. Is this something weird I'm saying, Rob? Oh, okay, okay. Now, I actually disagree on the strap front because although I agree that the standard Velcro astronaut straps are completely trash and almost unwearable for an adult, um, not so bad if you're really slim wristed. My girlfriend wears the Venus and she wears it on the original strap and she's got a very slim wrist. I guess it's around 15, 15 and a half centimeters. And for her, it's okay. But even for my pretty small 16 and a half centimeter wrist it's almost impossible to wear that comfortably but i also think that kind of forcing your consumers to get creative with the straps is in this very rare instance not such a terrible thing after all because it adds this extra element of personality to an otherwise very affordable watch of which there are we now know over a million out there in the market based on swatch group's recent sales report what I would love to see, and that's a great suggestion, Elon, is a bioceramic bracelet. Now, why the hell not? That's a piece of cake. I'm sure Swatch could make that happen. And if they did it in the style of the most recent Omega Speedmaster bracelet, the beautiful one that tapers to that gorgeous vintage-style clasp, I could see that being a real hit with consumers. So, yeah, why not? I would really like to see that, especially if they replicate the original Omega strap on the moon watch so the current strap that will be awesome so swatch i hope you're listening you know it's funny because what we're describing here now would basically look like a an ice watch or a toy watch you know from a few years back that mad crazy fashion trend that all of us in the watchmaking industry held our noses at because it was just well it stank it was gross it was horrible it should never have existed but it did and it was very popular for a while and now here we are with this slight wrinkle having been added to the equation, to the product equation, that this is a Swatch and Omega collaboration, suddenly it becomes valid in our minds. But I think that'd be a lot of fun. You know, the only downside to it that I could predict is that it would cost probably twice as much, at least twice as much. It may even be more expensive than the watch head and the 10 euro, 15 euro chronograph module inside it to produce a bracelet. And especially if it had a decent buckle, because the buckle might need to be lined with like a, a metal underpiece so that it really held in place securely. So maybe that's the reason why they're not going to do it. But if they did, if they did, okay, that's a good question. If they did, what would you pay for it? Would you pay another, would you pay twice as much? Would you pay even more than twice as much? Or would you expect it to be available for a premium of say a hundred francs or euros? Good question. So if we do the analogy and we use the benchmark of how much a head is and a strap with, let's say, the real moon watch, um, the watch is about, what, 7K on average. Strap is around eight 9,000. So it's, what, 15% give and take. So I would use the same analogy and say, hey, a moon swatch with a bioceramic in brackets metal bracelet should cost only 15% more madness no chance no chance because like the the value of the watch head in a mechanical watch is mostly because of the movement 
And the value of a Moonswatch watchhead is probably, okay, I'm sure that it costs them a few pence to squeeze out one of those bioceramic cases once they've got the mold sorted out. But the mold, it's going to be an expensive thing. You know, the most expensive part of that whole watch might even be the dial and handset. But even if it were still the movement, we're talking 10 or 15 euros for a movement. I don't think that there's any way you can produce a bracelet for less than that. Okay. Or maybe, maybe, maybe the same amount or maybe less in actual terms, but okay, not. Okay. Same amount. Let's work with that. I, in my mind, I said, I, as a collector and consumer are willing to pay 500 double. Let's say there are 250 to 60 euros. I'm willing to, I'm willing to upgrade my moon swatch, doubling the money I'm willing to put down. And if it raises my joy, honestly. I don't, I hate these Velcro straps there. I don't have a big wrist, but they're too small for me. And you already mentioned it's a kid's size. And I put on one of them a original Omega NATO strap, which is almost as expensive as the whole watch because they retail at what, 180, I believe. So, but it makes the watch so thick. The beauty of the moon swatch is I like the way that, it, that it's light, right? It's light on your wrist and, and, and not that thick. But then a real NATO strap, not a textile strap like Tudor makes them, for example, with a single bottom. A NATO strap has two layers of fabric under your case, right? Between your skin and your case. Right, right. So I make it very thick. So I'm not there yet. Uh, my colleague, my dear colleague, Dala, gave me a gift last week. He gave me a, an off-the-market, I don't know from where in China, integrated strap. I still need to put it on, but it's red. And on my mission to Mars, it's maybe a lot of red on red. Actually, because of that strap and the gift he gave me, I'm probably going to buy a third moon swatch just to have a nice color combo. Okay, that's a good idea. But I think like um, the rally strap that I'm wearing on my Jupiter is a weird choice perhaps, but it turned out to be the perfect combo because it's very sporty. It itself is very lightweight and it keeps that low profile aspect that you like so much. You know, there's another suggestion that I have for people that like the moon swatch. They want to retain the lightness. In fact, maybe it's it's two suggestions. I'll start with one that's not going to segue into another of our listeners' questions so easily. And that would be Erica's Originals. You know, Erica, I think she's Dutch, right? Um, it's a Dutch company with like this little elastic fabric expandable band with like a, a hook and loop closure. Are they, um, does she, doesn't she make the replicas of the Marine Nationale bracelets? Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Exactly. But I thought she was Scandinavian or Swedish. I had a feeling she was Dutch, but you know, let's Google it. Let's find out. She sounds Swedish. That's for sure. Yeah. But these straps are awesome. They're nice. They come in a lot of different colors and a, different, a lot of different styles. Okay, so she sounds Swedish. I thought she was Dutch. As it turns out, they're based in Bulgaria, of all places. So I just checked it out. That's interesting to know. Anyway, I don't know if Erica's from Bulgaria or not, but whatever. The straps that they make are perfect. And in fact, if you go on their Facebook account, you will see that the sixth most recent image at the time of writing, at the time of recording, is actually... A mission to Mars on a white and red and screen printed Erica's original strap, which is pretty neat. But the one that I was really going to push you in the direction of, and the one that I would love to have for a, yet another moon swatch of my own, would be a Nick Mankey strap. Now, these are the ones that we see most frequently on Fortis watches. And Nick Mankey is a designer, an American designer, who, definitely not Bulgarian, who does these crazy cool designs often in limited batches based around very popular Hollywood movies like the Top Gun series, for example, and some NASA straps and this kind of thing. And they are super comfortable, just like a thin strip of elastic with this really unusual uh, hook closure, slightly different from the Erica's one, even more straightforward, if anything. And they are just great, great to wear. But like I said, and this is where the segue comes in, we most often see these on Fortis because Fortis partners with Mankey on some of their very cool, more limited hook straps, and they have them available in the Fortis accessories store. And this week, Fortis reveals a bunch of new Flieger dial configurations, and we got a question from Max Dan in Munich, and that question is... Did you see the new Fortis Flieger dial updates drop the other day? As fans of Fortis, as he knows we are, what do you think about these new watches and what, if anything, would you change about them? Okay. 
Alon, I'm going to kick this one over to you to offer your initial feedback on the Nick Mankey strap suggestion for the Moonswatch and then your take on the new Forces Fleekers. So the straps, I love. Good one, you mentioned it. And maybe you want to mention the URL where people can see them and or order them. Sure, that's nickmankeydesigns.com. So N-I-C-K-M for mo hawk a n k e y d e s i g n for november s dot com thank you for that rob awesome um i'm actually going to order one myself i think so thank you for the tip and i've posted a few weeks ago on my instagram that this show is not good for me and especially not for my wallet because I'm consuming way too much watches and accessories because of it. So darn you, Rob. And David, if you're listening, you as well. So going to you, the second part of your question and actually Max's question, I love them. Um, although they're not new models, they're relatively new. We know that Ford is being revamped and, and, and you're a friend of the show. Uh, I've met you, and lovely guy. He's the not new, new, but he's relatively a new owner of the brand. And he's doing amazing stuff with the brand. And what I love about it, it's all contemporary. He could have gone the retro vintage E route and he didn't. And he takes it to new heights, literally. I mean, you've been with them on rocket launches, for God's sake. So I love it. I love the clean design. How difficult is it to make a contemporary flieger, but respecting the heritage and roots of that whole segment? Because they all kind of originated around the same time and they were instructed to look the same. The F39, F41, I guess the number says the case diameters. They come in steel, titanium, GMTs. I, I don't have much to add. I love them. We used to retail forts back in the day. I've owned them myself. I've worn them. I kind of want to buy back the Chrono with the 5100 caliber. Oh, yeah, that was a classic. That really was nice. Yeah. I had it, sold loads of them, miss it. Uh, Dala, which I just mentioned, has a very cool Fortis. That's an art piece. I forgot the name with... Uh, little sketched colored doodles on the dial. I'll look it up, maybe I'll post it on my Instagram. Oh, you know, they are fascinating. And I didn't even know they existed until I was in the in the attic, I think it was, of the Fortis building or one little room that I don't think it exists anymore because they've remodeled all of the old factory uh, so they can actually use the nooks and crannies that existed for storage in the past. And I somehow snuck into this little space and discovered a huge amount of uh, old dials or new old stock, as it were, dials that were never fitted to watches from their early days. And there was a bunch of these brightly colored cartoon scenes, basically little astronauts dancing around on the moon. And there were dials with like four little openings for hands. It was crazy. like, And all this stuff was brand new. And at the time, I suggested that we um, we actually try and like put together enough new old stock pieces to release like piece uniques for charity and just like oh we'll just assemble as many of these as we can using the parts that are left over from the old days and sell them off for fun because they were so cutesy and so great i mean they basically couldn't be further from what fortis is trying to do now and that is streamline and professionalize this collection to make sure that the pillars of the brand are really easily understood and very directly communicable and what we have here are some new additions to the fleagle line that i think will make a lot of people very happy some people they will leave cold because they like the uh, bright orange accents that we've seen on the dials in the past with the exception occasionally of course for the number 13 on the date but it doesn't appear that that is something they've replicated here throughout the range at all so the key colors are black liberty blue and indigo or black liberty blue and petrol so black doesn't need much explanation. What we have here now is an execution of the Flieger F41 and the Flieger F39. And also, most importantly for many people, myself included, the Flieger F43 Bicompact Chronograph. 
without the orange accents and the green loom blocks or uh, loom track around the outside of the dial. So it's almost like a paired back, very pure sketch of the watch has been lifted off the page and brought to life for the wrist. For people that find the orange distracting and a little bit juvenile, that's not me. I love it and I miss it. This will be a welcome addition if you want a solid everyday beater that follows the tool watch redefined core principles of Fortis and this is ideal. The Liberty Blue color that we have in question here is a very nice, rich, uh, between Royal and Navy Blue, I would say. And I think given the fact that these models tend to have a vertically grained finish to the dial, it will shift between dark blue and black depending on the light and the angle from which you view it and finally and most importantly most arrestingly for sure we have the petrol dial color which is a very handsome teal which again because of this vertical graining can actually shift to an almost dark gray black anthracite appearance from some angles but in the sunlight it bursts into life and I have to say is one of the most exciting and experimental colors I have seen from a tool watch brand like Fortis They've got previous with the Marine Master Collection, but this one, this is something else. This is a jewel in the Flieger lineup. So I think that one's going to be very popular, especially I would say the F41 because it benefits from the very, very clean dial because it allows that dial color to breathe. Amazing. And on topic of modern Flieger's pilot watches, he also got a question from Jacques in Amsterdam. He sent that to me on uh, DM. He's a huge pilot collector and posts a lot about Flieger Fridays. A nice hashtag for those of you that love pilot's watches and are not familiar with the hashtag. It's F-L-I-E-G-E-R and then Friday, F-R-I-D-A-Y. He refers to the watch that Bremont launched about two weeks ago and it's a limited edition word, a version of the Broad Sword and they called it the Broad Sword Recon. Um, before we dive into that, they are the first brand that is authorized by the MOD, the Ministry of Defense, the British Ministry of Defense, to use all three emblems of the armed forces, the Majesty's Armed Forces. So it's RAF, which is the Royal Air Force, and I need your help here, Rob. So we have the Army and Navy. Correct. Yeah. You didn't need my help at all. Yes, it. And and and, and as as have I understood from my friends over at the wing in Henley on Thames, uh, it has never been done before where all three of these um, parts of the armed forces can be produced. And you'll find three models of that collection where all three logos, emblems of these armed forces are on the watch. And now they made a cool limited edition in the broadsword where you have a sandwich dialed and it's inspired by the dirty dozen. So, Shark asks us, what do you got, gents, think of the new broadsword recon limited edition inspired by the dirty dozen? I hate how much I love this watch. <laughs> uh, I have to say, okay, uh, th no word of a lie, no hyperbole intended. This might be the best thing Bremont's ever done. I am, and I am completely in love with it. I have hook, line, and sink have fallen for it, and there's a couple of reasons why. The main reason why I struggle with my love for this watch is because it goes against one of the things that I have always demanded from my Bremont watches, and that is the triptych case design, which has the separate barrel and the over-the-top bezel and the case back that plugs in from behind is most noticeably used on the MB series, MB1, 2, and 3. And that one is particularly attractive because it has like a, let's call it a knurled anodized aluminium case cover that goes over the middle part of the case and gives it that distinctive vibrance. This is the one-piece case, or well, two-piece if you want the case back to be separated from it, and three-piece if you want to talk about the bezel that clicks onto the front. But it's not the triptych design. It is the much more solid, robust design, which was initially created for this HMAF series of watches a few years back when they first debuted. And at that time, I was against it because I was pretty upset to see the classic Bremont case construction abandoned for this 
I would assume cheaper, although also admittedly more reliable construction. However, oh dear, firstly, what a great brand to do a Dirty Dozen inspired piece because let's let's be real, if, if the war had occurred now, Bremont would be the supplier of the Dirty Dozen piece. And even though Vertex, which also exists again now, thanks to its refoundation by Don Cochrane, and its, its owner and CEO, Despite the fact that Vertex has that tangible history, it's not on the same level of Bremont, and it certainly doesn't have the same relationship that Bremont does with the armed forces. So we could imagine now that the real supplier of the new Dirty Dozen, let's hope, touch wood that it's never necessary, would actually be a watch that looks just like this. It has improved the original Dirty Dozen model in some tangible ways. It is far more robust. The water resistance is increased and most notably, it has this lovely non-poisonous sandwich dial, which provides great loom homogeny between the hands and the numerals. And you'll also notice that on the sub-dial between center and six o'clock, the cardinal marker points themselves are also skeletonized, which means that that sub-dial is highly legible in the dark. I adore it. I love the Ecru on black ring around the date window, which is itself Ecru on black. I think that the subtle gray printing for HMAF beneath the Bremont logo and the wing logo is just classy as hell. And yeah, if I could change one thing about this watch, and I'm really forcing myself here, it would be perhaps I would not have risked putting the enameled insert into the crown there and just had it engraved in bare metal just so it was like incredibly robust and almost indestructible like the old s500 crowns that's my takeaway alan what do you think about this watch wow rob you know i i, I it's a joy to hear you so excited and and wow what a statement the best one ever i'm almost there up with you still i love 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 the martin bakers so the mb2 um but the second favorite watch of mine is indeed the broadsword and what an accomplishment. I love sandwich dials. And you're so right. If somebody would make the 13, 12 dozen, uh, sorry, the, the dirty dozen. So the, from 12 to the 13, it should be Bremont. I actually don't have any critique. I agree with you. If I had to bitch about something, it's indeed that inlay in the crown. I love the fact that they made the dial tranquil by only writing 1630 in the subdial of the seconds, whereas the normal version has 60, 20, and 40. So that's something that stood out to me. And obviously it has legal implications and licensing. I would have loved to see a actual drawn broad arrow on the dial. But Rob, maybe you can give a quick history lessons to our listeners that don't know what the dirty dozen are and what it means to supply it to the area. Well, the Dirty Dozen watches are perhaps some of the most famous collectible pieces in our industry from brands that, in many cases, I guess most watch lovers don't even know existed. Certainly not the big names that you would expect. You know, there's no Rolex Dirty Dozen, there's no Patek Philippe or my Pigo or Vashner and Constantine. These watches were made to be highly functional, highly legible, durable watches that could stand up to the rigors and hardships of war. And they were commissioned towards the end of the Second World War. In fact, so late on in the war, actually, that not that many of them, relatively speaking, ever made it to the front. And they were built according to a set of strict criteria, so all of them look very similar. There are a couple that stand out for slightly quirkier takes on the instructions. For example, there's a Longines that has a thicker than average bezel and a bit more of a domed or double domed crystal in the middle, giving it quite a unique look amongst the 12. But so let me see if I can get this right. I'll roll it off the top of my head. Uh, we really should do more preparation for these episodes, Elon. Okay, so the brands that were involved in the Dirty Dozen were Longines, uh, JLC, that's uh, Jäger or Jäger Le Culture, as I was told by our French-speaking co-host David the other day, it should be said, uh, Omega, Saima, Record, Buren, Vertex, Lamania, Timor, Eterna, did I say Omega, IWC? <laughs> did, did I get them all there? I think you got them. I always forget one, two, or three. They're like the 12 
They're like the 12 tribes. I always come to eight, nine, 10, and I forget the last two. Same with the Dirty Dozen. Always loved them ever since I'm a kid. My dad has a deep fascination for pilots watches, so I inherited that passion as well. I love the history behind it, the story behind it. They commissioned several manufacturers because they simply needed a huge quantity and not a single brand could supply all. And as you said, most of them arrived too late, if you would like to mention it like that. I am today a proud owner of one of the versions, and that's actually, I call it Sima, but it's Sima, C-Y-M-A, because my mom is called Sima. I guess the most wanted ones are the IWC Omega and then the Gijalak Ultra. And I believe one of the brands that didn't exist in the last years, but got revived, is Timor, if I'm not mistaken. Right, Rob? Yeah, they brought them back with basically exactly the same design. Well, not exactly, but slightly updated for a modern audience. And I really loved that. I really enjoyed writing about that at the time when it debuted. And I think that was a really good effort. And of course, Vertex came back as well with a model that was more inspired by rather than it was a reissue of the original. I'll tell you what I found here. I've got this table from Conrad Nirum's book, British Military Timepieces, which is available on Hadinki for any of our listeners that would like to check this out. You can just Google um, Dirty Dozen Hadinki and then you get the article and it's about halfway down the page. Really useful. It lists the brands and also their production figures. Now, this is interesting, I think. So like Alan said, it was split across so many companies because no one company could have made enough, but the amounts produced varied wildly. And we will see that certain pieces are very rare, whereas others are somewhat more common. So let's start at the top. This is not in, this is an alphabetical order of brands. So uh, not in order of production numbers. We have Buren, 11,000 pieces. Notable for the fact that it has a chrome top, which five of the 12 also do. All the rest have got stainless steel, so they're a bit more durable. We've got Sima, or Sima, if you're talking to Elon's mum, and that's 20,000 pieces. Eterna only produced 5,000 pieces. Grana, the rarest of the bunch, produced between one and 5,000. Nobody's quite sure how many. Uh, JLC produced 6,000, Lamania 10,000, Longines 8,000, IWC 5,000. Now for me, that makes the IWC probably the most desirable because of its brand power and very small production numbers. It's a bit better in my mind than the Grana simply because it's IWC and it has a bit more pomp to its heritage. Omega, 25,000 pieces. That's a lot. Same as Record, also 25,000 pieces. Timor made 13,000 and... England's pride brand Vertex made 15,000. So you can see there that all in all, there aren't a huge amount of these pieces ever being produced. Most of them that made it to the front lines did experience some significant damage. Those that didn't were quite often lost or given away or maybe repurposed for other watches in the future. So finding one and finding one in good condition is the pursuit of many an eager watch collector and... It's a fascinating thing. I know one guy, a friend of mine in Indianapolis, uh, Vladimir Tzlatsovich, he, I think, has all of them. I think. He's certainly been posting his way through them on Facebook in recent times. So, yeah, that is um, that is something quite special if you're able to actually finish that collection, but I don't think many people do. That's amazing, actually. I've never met somebody who has them all. And while you're talking, I pulled up also a picture where all 12 of them listed. I always forget Grana and I always forget Record. While looking at all of them stacked together, Rob, which one of the dial configurations or case configurations is your favorite of the 12? I have always had quite a soft spot for the Lamania, actually. I like the hand shape. It's kind of, um, would you call them swords or ties? What do people call those ones? A sword, arrow hand then. Yeah, they're broader, they're more legible. And, you know, it's a bit like a game of guess who. You could sort of play this. In fact, we should do that. We should make a watchmaking version of the Dirty Dozen. There are some, like the JLC and the Longines with cathedral hands, which I think are a bit ornate. But then again, they do nod to the pocket watch history. And if I I was going to pick a second one, maybe that weirdo Longines with the bubble crystal in the middle would be the the winner. But I think the purest of them all, and maybe it's boring, I don't know, but the Lamania ticks all my boxes. And it's a brand that I love for its long history of movement manufacture and do kind of miss having on the scene. 
Yeah, interesting. Yeah, what about you? It's IWC, Sima, and then Omega. And yeah, it's I don't like these 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 syringe bubbly hands, cathedral hands. So those are no go. I don't like when they cut off the numbers. So Omega did, but I don't know. I love the configuration of it, and I guess the IWC one is the most clean one. I am happy IWC did supply the RAF because I have a hate love relationship with the big pilot. So the BUA that IWC made because obviously that was the wrong side. The Swiss always said they're independent. And by supplying the REF amidst WW2, they've proven that they are literally objective. Um, as far as I know, Omega um, only supplied the other side of the channel. Um, but it's interesting how with a design brief, 12 brands created 12 different watches. There's not one that is similar to the other. Right. Uh, there's, yeah, like I say, it, it's it's close in a couple of cases, but they're all their own watch. And it is a fascinating pursuit to dedicate your collecting career to trying to get them all. But good luck, because as time wears on, obviously there'll be fewer and fewer good examples. And because of sites like Hodinki and podcasts like ours, there are more and more people aware of them. So the chances of you getting all 12 in one box are ever diminishing. But can I make a suggestion, please? And I have checked while you were talking, I checked all of the published articles on uh, on this new model so far. And I can attest that nobody has yet said this. So if they do say it, then we could, we know they're copying us, which has, of course, happened once or twice before already, which we take great pride in. Um, let's nickname this new model from Bremont, from Bremont, the Baker, because this is the Baker's dozen. This is the 13 to the 12. So the Bremont Baker, that's our little nickname for it. Okay. You like that? Yes. I'm going to even email them to claim this. So thank you for that, Rob. Good one. Whomever says you're not creative doesn't know what they're talking about. It, it, it became half a Flieger Friday episode. So let's quickly go to the next question. I received a DM on Instagram from at speedy Bert year. He wrote to us or asked, inevitably, some young enterprises thrive or others fail. Unfortunately, the same will hold true for some of you, our beloved independents. How do you see the future serviceability of independence watches, especially those using proprietary or manufacture movements? So what is Speedy Bird you're talking about? So the beauty of independent watchmakers and manufacturer calibers, it's uh, the IP, the intellectual property, obviously, is the beauty, the construction, the finishing. But the downside of it is that if they stop their existence and there are no spare parts left anymore or there's no access to them anymore, you can't really service those calibers and watches that well in the future. So the upside of, let's say, the, the, the massive volume calibers by Seiko, Salita, Ita, etc., are that there's vast numbers of them and a lot of spare parts. So it's easier to service them far in the future. Rob, what's your take on this? You know, there is one thing that I say in response to all of these concerns, and it, it, it may come across a bit glib and I don't mean it to, but what I always say is anything that has been made can be remade. So the idea that you literally can't fix any watch is actually false. Now, does that mean you can fix it for a reasonable amount of money in a reasonable amount of time the answer there is also no you you can't you can't guarantee that at all so what speedy birth year is driving at is that so many of these new companies they have their new movements or proprietary movements made what happens if those components fail now the majority of components used in proprietary movements so let's say stuff that comes out of say chronode or concepto for example is it's actually the same as one another. So you have a base caliber that is generally aesthetically modified, but the components that go into it, the functional components like the wheels and the jewels and the screws, for example, are actually the same from one caliber to another. It's just the bridge configuration makes it look very different. So there's a lot more of these pieces in stock. So if one chronode supplied independent like 
let's say Chapek were to fail, heaven forbid that should ever happen, but if Chapek were to disappear from the landscape in 20 years' time, and bizarrely, the young up-and-coming Laventure, who has a chronode movement in their new in their new Laventure automobile chronograph, were to be still in existence and you wanted to get that movement serviced, the wheels that had fitted in some of the earlier base calibers from Chapek would likely be transferable to the base caliber from the Laventure. So even though we're seeing a lot more variety and a lot more aesthetic manipulation, we are also working with fewer manufacturers than is perhaps apparent to people looking at these watches side by side through case backs that show very different views because of the amount of cosmetic work that's been done on those movements before they call those cases their home. So we're not talking about the scale of ETAs. We're not talking about the scale of Salitas. We're not talking about the scale of Seikos. But we are pointing out that these movement manufacturer specialists are still not that numerous. And they still have and will likely have the technology necessary to produce the parts that your watch requires for it to run. Now, a bigger question may be, will those movements look the same in the future? So if you sustained aesthetic damage to a completely custom top plate from a brand that had since failed and maybe didn't invest appropriately in spare parts for the movement manufacturer to hold and use when servicing the proprietary calibers they funded, then you might find yourself in a situation where it cannot be aesthetically repaired. And that's more likely to go before the chances of it not being able to be mechanically repaired go, because those things are far more specific to the brands. So it's quite possible that even after a brand might fail, its movements would be serviceable for a significant period of time. They may sustain aesthetic damages, of course, from broken pivots that roll around on top plates or snap mainsprings that have that's view oil everywhere and cause it to coagulate and chip teeth off wheels and scratch bits here, there and everywhere, whatever. That may happen. That's more likely to happen. And that's something, of course, you should be concerned about if you are thinking long, long, long term into the purchase of this watch and how important it is to you that it still looks the way that it does now years down the line. But I would say at the moment, independent watchmakers seem to be doing pretty damn well and that doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. So if you get to a point of establishment like Chapek, you're not likely to see that brand going anywhere anytime soon. Interesting. And thank you for that, Rob. And I used to worry about it as a retailer and obviously I have a uh, moral obligation to service any watch as a retailer that I sell. And so I, I did take that very seriously and explain it to consumers whenever they buy a more rare caliber watch. But I'm getting less and less worried. And that actually comes, becomes because of the fact that we have 3D printing today, where we literally can even produce um, gold parts 3D printed. And I always think of Holtenrichs. So that actually takes my worry away. And I wanted to ask you now on the topic of 3D Printing, I was blown away by listening to our dear mutual friend Ariel Adams podcast, where he interviewed the founder of the brand Barrelhead. Have you heard about that brand, Rob? Oh, yeah. I followed it extensively because of Ariel, actually, because it was only on a blog to watch that I learned about it. And uh, I was fascinated, still am fascinated by his efforts to bring this to life. I think the first time I read about it would have been 2020. I guess maybe that's when he started the project. I'm not sure if it was intentionally a lockdown thing or if it just kind of happened to fall over that period. But yeah, his idea was to make every component or pretty much every component, I guess, from a 3D printer, right? Correct. So on that topic, um, I'm not that bothered. And you see, I love podcasts. I learn something every day. So Speedy Bird here, I hope we answered your question. And if you were worried, we hope we took away your worries and please keep your questions coming yeah i i know that was a long-winded answer on my side because i kind of went down a rabbit hole i wasn't expecting but it was intended to be somewhat reassuring you know there's a lot more similarity to the way that watches work than is often immediately apparent from their aesthetics alone and even more overlap in the types of parts and the style of gear trains and even tooth can 
that is used in the industry. And, you know, we have the technology now. The 3D printing aspect, that is a really, really good point, I have to say, because I didn't think about that. You could even have a situation where if a brand were to fail, they could maybe as part of their duty to their customers, make it clear within their within their mission statement that they would make available to uh, open source to anyone uh, a 3D model of their movements so that any of those components could be picked up by even an independent manufacturer or a little watchmaker on the street who, who knows, might in the future use a 3D printing for much more of their own repairs and fixing and refurbishing watches from the past to get them running so that those watches could be repaired in more locations around the world. That would be a really interesting thing to actually, you know, put out there to say if we fail we will make all of our plans available in 3d printable files so it's that easy for people to be sure about it alan what a great idea <laughs> you see you and i have great ideas and we literally bounce off each other wow i am gonna take that that is brilliant i'm right you're getting credit for it of course but what an idea to put into a a company's mission statement as it's founded that that would be available and therefore Speedy Berthier's fear could be instantly allayed. Wow. Slam dunk, mate. Yeah, see, I, I think we're a good team and um, we're here to share passion and knowledge about watchmaking. That's the aim of this show. And I'm still enjoying it. And I hope you guys listening too, um, please keep them coming. We love the questions. You see, you inspire us. So going to the next one, diving into the mail bag, Richard Swords. Use the contact form. Thank you, Richard. Richard loves the contact form. Richard loves the contact form. It's amazing. Richard is amazing. He's epic. So this time, he sent us a message. Via that contact form, Richard asked us, is the new Salmon Down Portugieser the pick of the collection due to the fact it eliminates the often annoying date window entirely? Just to remind you, my Portugieser has silver numerals on a silver dial with white date window. So Rob, what do you think? I have a clear-cut answer, but I'm very curious what you think. Well, okay, so Rich has been in touch. Uh, he's asked us a couple of questions uh, centered around his Portuguese, and his first contact was really about the annoyance he felt when comparing his date window with the base color of a dial and how there was such a clash. And he said he hadn't noticed it when he bought it so much, but over time, it really started to wear on him, and he, and he preferred like color-coded date windows, as I do myself. We are kindred spirits in that regard. This new IWC Portuguese Automatic 40 millimeters, which was written about during the month of February online, gets not just a salmon dial, but also a rather beautiful movement inside it, which is known as the caliber 82200 for power reserve 60 hours automatic winding 28800 vph 31 joules and crucially no date so there aren't enough salmon dials in the industry in general we like a bit of salmon it's a very tasty look and although i generally dislike the portuguese quite quite a lot because i don't like the numerals and i always find it looking a bit vacant as a watch and if i were to buy from iwc i would go in the fliga line i must say this for me and the idea is also buoyed by the movement is one of the best choices that they have going i, I like it a lot and i would say for an asking price of seven and a half thousand us dollars that's pretty damn good so yeah maybe richard maybe it is but what do you think alan Rob, um, did you take your temperature? Or do you have a fever? You don't like the Portuguese? Is this a revelation? Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I think we need to end our friendship. For me, the Portuguese is one of my all-time favorite watches. It's really high, high, high up there. So I fell in love with it. And I remember the year vividly, 1985, because my dad was rocking it. So I was only six, seven years old. So a lot happened, 83 Swatch, G-Shocks, I came up with that. Uh, my dad was wearing the Porsche design IWCs. So coming from the 70s, 85, they only had five years to go because they ended the partnership in 1990. So 20 years only. He rocked the chronograph with the integrated pushers, the Compass Watch and the Ocean 2000. So that's where my love for titanium comes from. But then in 85, they revived 
the Portuguese collection a bit, but it was a modern take because they made a chronograph, the version, 40.9 millimeters, very big back in the day, because if we recollect correctly, 1984, 85, Breitling brought back the chronomat in a new type case with the rouleau bracelet, the bullet bracelet, relatively big 39 millimeters with a Vanjou 7750, so rather thick for the day. And then IWC threw a curveball. They revived the Portuguese because that watch, if I'm recollecting correctly, it was 1936, the original version. So I fell in love with that watch. It's the cleanness of the dial. It was the first chronograph I saw that was by compacts, but in a vertical line instead of a horizontal line. So the subdials of the chronograph were positioned at 12 and 6 versus 3 and 9. So I've always loved that watch. It's actually... The first IWC I've ever bought, I still own it. Ever since I've had over 10 different models going from hand-wound to the perpetual calendar. Uh, Rachapant was also one of my favorite ones done by Habring. The funny thing is, the most original one is the one that Richard is referring at. And they've gave it some TLC in Schaffhausen by bringing a salmon dialed version out recently. And why do I find Salmon very relevant for IWC? Because I don't know if you recollect the GST Perpetual Calendar with Salmon Dial Rub. Yeah. Yeah. That was a very odd watch in general in the watchmaking industry, and especially for IWC. Very cool. So I love it. They did indeed solve the issue with the contrasting colors for the date disc, and the Portuguese shouldn't even have a date because the original didn't. So I think it's a home run. I think you need to go see a doctor. You need to get go to the optician, get new glasses, or get glasses in general, because it's up there together with a reverso. Not saying that the pilots are not amazing, because yeah, I guess if we look at pilots, and we're talking so much about pilots today, IWC has deep, deep heritage and relevance for the history of pilot watches, because we've just concluded they were literally objective and supplying all sides of the world, literally with pilot watches um, and they are amazing and they're still amazing and um, but but for me the Portuguese is up there and we always talk in the industry like us retailers IWC is just three P's I'm not talking about the P's by Porter in marketing who has four P's that evolved into six P's but it's the pilot Portuguese and Portofino that's what keeps IWC afloat let's say that's where they make their money so I don't know if I answered your question Rob sorry I've been ranting a bit but <laughs> And I hope we answered Richard's question. I think that you did a very solid job of at least giving us your background in the IWC collection and your love for the Portuguese. Because, yeah, that is something upon which we, we really differ. And there are Portuguese models that I like more than others. In fact, I like the chronograph quite a lot, to be honest. Although I know that the subdials cut off the 12 and the 6 markers, which probably annoys you. But I, I like that. I think it's well balanced. And like I said before, the, the word vacant is actually how I described the dial. And that just came to me while I was staring at that salmon piece. But I stand by it. That's what I always feel like with the Portuguese. And look, it's a classic. I know it's a classic. I know it's beloved. I know that it has fans and fan clubs dedicated to it all around the world. And, and that's absolutely fine. I'm not the arbiter of taste. It's just, in my opinion, it is not for me. And yeah, that is part of the beauty of the hobby and why we enjoy having this podcast. And <laughs> thank goodness I'm not quite as susceptible to falling in love with these watches as you are. Otherwise, I'd be completely skinned. <laughs> okay, but you know what? I'm very, very curious what you think of the news drop today. And I, I didn't even want to mention it because I kind of found it irrelevant, marketing mumbo-jumbo. But since we're talking about the topic, this morning I read... Uh, our dear friend Frank's blog, Monochrome Watches. And I saw a little article that IWC offers in some of their monobrand boutiques, only a few in the world, the option to customize the Portuguese chrono. Today, it's called the 3716. To recap, it's very easy. You can walk into one or three IWC boutiques in the world, so very limited till now. Gives me a bit of Moonswatch vibes, but okay. Especially the Moonshine one. Only four boutiques in the world. So you can choose a steel or a red gold version. You can customize it in store with these five, I believe, pastel colored dials and then different straps. And they bring this as big news. So what do you think of that? Well, firstly, it's actually 16 
different dials, but they're very subtle shades, different from one another. They use greens and pastel blues and purples, pinks, greys, minks, even as a sort of reddish example too, an almost plum dial, which I think is rather attractive if I do say so. Now, what do I think about this? I think that it's actually surprisingly ingenious. Now, customization or bespoke watchmaking, that's nothing new, but attaching that to locations, that is not something I have heard of before. And that I am a fan of because what I don't like about customizations and giving too much choice to the customer, and this is only my opinion, but what I believe it does is it hands too much power to the consumer to dictate what a brand is and what products it should offer. I do honestly believe quite strongly that a brand should be the leader in its own design and it should make those decisions and offer those products to the consumers. There is always a little bit of me that wonders when a brand comes out with all these many configurable options as to whether they just couldn't decide what was the best and they thought, oh, we'll just throw it all at them and see what sticks. Now, for some consumers, that's great. And in the short term, I actually think it works commercially as well. What bothers me about it is the long-term viability of it as a brand strategy, as a brand building exercise. Now, this is cool, this project that IWC is pursuing, because it has all the colors and it has all the newsworthiness and it looks really exciting and it adds another element of exclusivity to the brand. But you can't just sit at home in your pants on iwc.com and configure your own watch and have it sent to your door. You have to be somewhere. So it's tied to a place. And that's always important to me because that's what watches are to me in many ways, tied objects to a place or a time, for example. So I have all the time in the world for this idea. I do not want to see all brands adopt it and start doing the same thing, but it's creative. It's new. It is constrained enough so that it doesn't get out of control. And some of the end results that you're able to to reach by going through this design process with the options IWC has made available are absolutely divine. Interesting, because I don't see it that way. Um, so I scrolled down the article and it says for more information, IWC.com. I go to IWC.com. I am scrolling all the time while you're talking and listening to you. And I can't find it on their website by doing it only with two boutiques. And they have a boutique nowadays in almost every city in the world shows me that either they can't handle it and it's difficult, which you say, or they don't believe in it, or it's a test case. Um, I don't want to be just negative. So the first thing I thought, hey, they solved the problem with contrasting date disks because they chose a model that doesn't have the date. So that's one problem solved. But I wouldn't call this customization or personalization. This is just a configurator. You can choose two cases. You said 16 dials. Okay, but obviously for the gold version, you have different dials than the steel one. So it's less options. And straps too. It's not such a hoo-ha because straps I could always customize. The cases is a given. And I would have liked them to push the envelope. Say, okay, when you come to our boutique, it's like the moon swatch. You can't order them online. Come to the boutique, we'll literally personalize. Choose either hands you can't get in the regular models. Get it engraved, personalized, or do something that's really, really personal and customized. If they say, these shades of colors are only available in that store. They are. That's for me. Yeah. So that's the unique identifier then. Yeah. Yeah. And then they become, let's say, local limited editions, aren't they? Right? Right. So, okay. So, so that's the only thing. But you, knowing them, if it's a success, they'll roll it out. Yeah, maybe. But they might also roll out new dial colors for each location. And just while I, I have the mic for a second, each of the 16 dial colors is available with either white gold or rose gold uh, pleats so it can be matched up any way you want it. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, so that would be cool. But what I would like to see then is the Starbucks mug collecting vibe. Every city you visit or Hard Rock back in the day, remember you would buy a shot glass or you go to Starbucks and tourists buy all these Starbucks with the local city on them. Yeah. That, that would actually, yes, be cool. So Swatch does that, right? Swatch has local limited editions just sold. Yeah, and Meisterzinger tried it as well, right, with printings on the case backs. I think that even one of your local retailer buddies, Mark Langer in Alkmaar, is it? I, he, he has one, yeah. If you take that trail of thought or strategy, that I would like. But okay, anyway, so interesting move. Um, brands are trying. They got the fact that we want to underline our own identity and get things customized. So let's round it up on a positive side. 
kudos to you, IWC. Yeah, we like seeing new ideas, new creativity, and yeah, there's loads of things we could pick over this particular announcement and this release. Like, are there too many dial colors for one location? Are there too few locations, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. But we'll see what comes of it, and it might inspire some better and more refined actions in the future from either IWC or other brands. If you've enjoyed this episode and you'd like to be part of the next Q&A session, then please get in touch with us either via Instagram. I'm there at Rob Nudds. That's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S. Alon can be found at Alon Ben Joseph. That's A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. You can contact us via email rob at the realtime.show or alon at the realtime.show or of course via our contact form as favored by some of our most dedicated listeners. We will be back next week with another dive into the mailbag and talking to one of Watch Industries' rising stars. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking.